Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the uh, video podcast show. Not really sure what this one is. It's, welcome to the show, the big show, the most important, critically came show that is recorded in our. Right now, we're sitting in both sitting in our big comfy chairs in our living room. This is something a little different. So we're going to be doing a uh, prepper med illustration using actual diagrams and stuff like that. So you can actually either listen to this on the podcast or you can go to YouTube via the link in the podcast stuff and actually watch the graphics as they scroll by. So I'm going to turn this over to Spice and this is mostly just going to be all her because this is her thing. So I know what this is. This is 2020. This is a Zoom meeting podcast. (laughs) Because that's what 2020 does, at least in my world. So here's the thing. Uh, Starting a series here talking about the physiology of how various systems work and how that relates to things that might be important to preppers. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is blood vessels. Because they're really cool pipes. And not only are they really cool pipes, but they've got some tricks that you can learn to use to your best interest in prepping kinds of situations. And we're doing it with the diagrams because I talk much better about physiology when I can draw really bad diagrams because that's how I roll. So here's one for you. This is, of course, very diagrammatic because we have, here's the heart. There's the heart. Right side of the heart, left side of the heart. And the right side of the heart just pumps the blood to the lungs so it can pick up oxygen and lose carbon dioxide, send it back to the left side. And the left side of the heart pumps that blood everywhere else. So here you see the major artery, the aorta, coming out of the left ventricle, big, fat, pulsing sucker. And as it takes all the blood out of the left ventricle, various arteries branch off in different directions, taking blood to various parts of the body. And it's kind of like a tree where you start with one trunk and then you start sending off branches. And every branch you send out makes the stem a little more narrow. And the branches get smaller and smaller as you divide them further and further. So the first major trunk is this aorta bringing all the blood out of the heart. And then it starts sending it around. It's got the big arteries. And then the arteries, once they get inside these individual organs... They're going to branch into a number of smaller vessels called arterioles. And eventually those guys will subdivide into an extremely large number, like millions of miles, literally, of tiny little capillaries that infiltrate the tissues. And here is Joe, your body cell, sitting out here. He's going to be able to trade materials with the blood in the blood vessels as they go through the capillaries. And then we're going to collect that blood, which is now lower in oxygen and nutrients and higher in wastes. And we're going to have some venules that are going to collect into larger veins. And then we're going to bring the blood back to the heart so we can do it all over again. So that's the general circulatory pattern. And the main focus of today is a cool little trick that these small vessels have. Going to wrap some around here. 
and I'm going to wrap some around there and around there and around here. A lot of these blood vessels have smooth muscle wrapped around them. And as you can see in the little drawing there, they're wrapped around it like you had your arms sticking out and you wrapped your fingers around your arms. So the circles of muscle are around the vessel. If you made your vessel look like that, then you'd have your, with the blood coming out towards you, you'd have your smooth muscle cells wrapped around it like that. So when we wanted to constrict the muscle, that muscle's going to squeeze on down. That's my weightlifting sounds. Until you have a smaller diameter vessel. And there's several reasons you, you do this. One thing you want to do is when you have a bigger vessel, you get more blood flow to the tissue. So the tissues gets more blood that it can exchange with. It gets better access to oxygen and nutrients. It has an easier time getting rid of its waste when you give it more flow. So you want the big vessels bigger when you want more flow. When you make the vessels smaller by constricting them, you do that when it's time to raise your blood pressure, because that'll raise pressure. It will shut down the flow to the tissue somewhat. But another thing it's going to do is it's going to reduce heat loss. So the major reasons you want to change the size of these vessels, you want to increase the flow when the tissues are active. Whatever tissues are most active, you're going to give them the very most flow. And when they're less active, it's okay if they get less flow. It's critical that you keep your blood pressure high enough so you'll constrict your vessels when you need to do that. But the other major reason you constrict vessels, especially at the skin, is to control heat loss. Because when the vessels are big and fat and wide open in the skin, you're bringing all that nice warm blood close to your surface. Here is our happy prepper. I promised you bad drawings. You when we bring more nice warm blood to the surface, we're going to radiate a lot of body heat off. High flow cools your body down more effectively, whether you want it to or not. You feed the tissues better, but you get cooler. So one thing you're going to do if you start to lose too much body heat and this guy gets cold, he's going to constrict those blood vessels, make them smaller. And he's going to reduce the amount of heat he loses to the outside world. Now, one of the cool things about physiology is you've got a way to sense what you need internally, make it happen. So if you've got a muscle here, here's a skeletal muscle. And you're making a muscle, rawr, you're doing a bunch of work. You want to have a bunch of flow. And your body's going to make it happen because these active working muscles are going to send out some chemical signals. And those signals are going to tell the muscle around the blood vessel to loosen up. And that'll make your blood vessel nice and big and wide. 
and you'll get a lot of flow. And now the actively working tissue is happy because it has all the nice blood flow it needs. But there's a side effect to that. What's going to go on with that is when you have better blood flow to a tissue and it's warmer, it's going to work better because it's got all the nutrition it needs and all the waste removal it needs. And also, it's going to be less likely to be injured. People don't think about it a whole lot, especially when you hear them talking about uh, putting these giant get-home bags on their back and trekking through miles of woods and while they're foraging and camping out and doing all that Joe Cool stuff. They don't think of what, what happens if you uh, try and sling that big old bag on your shoulder and you wrench your shoulder pull a muscle when you're doing that times of emergency when you're having to do a bunch of strange stuff you don't really do injury risk is much higher than usual and it is absolutely the last thing so one thing about this is don't forget that basic stuff you learned in gym class if you're going to have to be doing hard work especially if it's out in the cold where the blood flow is restricted in the first place you absolutely are going to want to make sure you reduce injury by increasing the flow to the tissue before or before you get heavy about it. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Give it a try, Salty. You want more blood flow to a muscle because you're about to have to heft some big old heavy stuff pushing your emergency vehicle out of the mud so you can continue your bug out. What can you do? You can warm up. Why, yeah. You can do your warm-ups. You can stretch. You can eat lots of chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> Eating lots of chocolate is always a winning idea. But the actual effective thing I was going for there is you don't start right in, jump out of that vehicle, put your shoulder behind it, plant your feet, and put your absolute foremost effort to it when you're out there in the cold and shivering because then you rip something wide open when you got no uh, no way to get it fixed and you're half lame for the next however many weeks or months. It's a, a bad answer. So instead, you find out you're stuck. You take a moment. You walk around a little bit. You swing your arms a little bit. You get the blood moving. You've been cramped up in that vehicle for a while. You get the blood flowing before you set your shoulder behind that thing and give it your major shove. And that way you're, a, one, more likely to actually get the thing pushed out of the mud because your muscles are going to work better. And two, you're less likely to tear that muscle into pieces, so it's not going to work for you properly for the next week. So be thoughtful of that, especially when you're out in the cold. Now, it's a little hokey, but I've seen it on uh, baseball games on TV when these uh, guys are going to go pitch. They'll have these special jackets made that cover only their one arm and shoulder. So their pitching arm stay, stays nice and cozy. It reminds me of that uh, movie, uh, some cheesy sports movie about baseball where the guy wanted hats for his bats. Keep bats warm. Now that is not a cheesy. That is major league. That is a work of art. Keep bats warm. But it doesn't help you hit a curveball. No. However, keeping the arm muscles warm will help you throw a fastball or throw the curveball in the first place. So they have these uh, 
kind of cheesy little one-shouldered jackets they put on to keep their pitching arms warm. Really, it's okay. You can put on a whole jacket and keep your whole body warm. But if you don't have time to warm up, start with lots of layers on. Because we're talking about somebody who's going to be working out in the cold. So you got this body that's going to be working out in the cold. And if you start out without a whole lot on, you're going to restrict blood flow to the skin and you're going to be more susceptible to injury and you're not going to function very well. You'll start to lose manual dexterity pretty quick. That's not a great answer. So what we're going to start doing here is we're going to start putting on lots of nice, thin layers of clothing on top of this guy. Start him out nice and bundled up. He's going to go out there and start cutting his wood or shoveling or carrying water or doing whatever he's going to do. And then as soon as he starts to warm up, take off a layer. Work some more. Start to get warm. Threaten to start up a sweat. Before you get a real sweat going, you take off another layer. You go out there in layers and you remove them as you get warm because there's two things you don't want to happen. You don't want to be working cold because it saps too much energy and it makes you more. But you also don't want to sweat up because sooner or later you're going to be done working. And there are things that are more miserable than being out in the cold, completely sweated through because you were working before. And then you stop working, and your body heat goes down, and now you're soaking wet, and you're still out in the cold. There are things more miserable than that, but the list is kind of short. It's really unpleasant, and it is danger go. So that is a prepper consideration. You want to be warm when you start working, but don't forget you don't want to sweat up in there. So you go out in layers and strip them off as you go. Burlesque music is an option as you strip off layers. On the other side of that is the fact that people are often wondering what's the best best clothing they can wear out in the cold to protect themselves. And that is a big important deal. But if you the more effective way to warm your body is actually to keep it moving. And there are two parts to that. When you move, you'll generate more core body heat. And when you have plenty of core body heat, you'll go ahead and open up those blood vessels to the skin so you can start radiating that heat off. That brings the heat closer to the surface. That's going to make you more comfortable, and it's going to maintain your dexterity and your strength and your abilities and all that. So you generate heat in your core. I know this when I cycle. When I go out cycling this time of year, it's about refrigerator cold outside this time of year. So when I go out cycling, I go out and the first half mile, my fingers and my toes start going numb. I'm like, okay, you can't let your fingers go so numb that you can't grab the brakes. But other than that, you keep going for another mile, mile and a half. By about two miles in, I'll have generated enough core heat that it goes ahead and uh, starts sending blood back to my fingers and toes, and my fingers and toes will warm up even though I'm still out there in the cold. So moving is a more effective way than clothing of keeping your core heat. But if you're moving, you got to keep fed. 
when I go out for a ride in the summer, I'm about 30 miles in before I start needing to eat. If it's winter, it's 15 or 20 miles because you burn through a lot more calories uh, when you're exercising in the cold than when you're exercising in the warm, or at least I do. Time for an aside here. Please note that this isn't the same exact thing, but it's much easier to become dehydrated in the cold because you don't want to drink as much as you do in the hot, but you still need to keep hydrated in the cold. Okay, back to your... I'm going to leave that note here because I'm going to be right back there because I married a smart man. So, yeah, you do need to keep fed when you're working out there because I find I get cold even when I'm still moving if I don't eat. And I'm sure it's because I don't have enough easily available calories to keep the motor running as hot as the motor would like to run. But Salty brought up an excellent point here, and that's actually where I was going to go next. Because when you are dehydrated, that means you are low on body water. And water is a good chunk of what's in the blood, more than half of what's in the blood. So when you're low on water, you're actually low on blood volume. When you're low on blood volume, you're low on blood pressure. And if you're low on blood pressure, your brain absolutely hates that. And we'll fight against it, fights against it by constricting blood vessels. And when you constrict blood vessels, of course, you get colder. You feel colder. Colder. I don't know why I put that many O's in there, but there we are. So avoid dehydration. As Salty said, you don't notice it as much in the winter. But through your breath, even though you're not sweating as much, you lose a considerable amount of water and you don't feel it. So keep hydrated, even though it's cold, when you're working out there. The flip side of this is there are some other things that you should not do. Not letting yourself get dehydrated was one of them on my list. Something else that ends up being significant. If the St. Bernard comes to rescue you when you're in the snow and he's carrying that cute little chug of brandy. Here's your dog. Yeah, I don't have time to drive good dog. Here's his little cask of brandy. He's taken with it. No brandy. Alcohol. People often talk about taking a nip to keep them warm when they're out in the cold. Wrong, but thank you for playing. Alcohol causes blood vessels to dilate. Yes, you feel warmer. You feel warmer because you're sending more nice warm blood to the skin. When you send that nice warm blood to the skin, all that lovely heat radiates away into the outside world and your core is colder. So if you have alcohol when you're out in the cold, you will feel warmer, but you'll actually chill faster. So if you're only going to be out there for half an hour because you're watching a football game or something like that, uh, it's not a tragic deal. But if it's an actual strategy to keep warm in the cold, you picked a pretty lousy strategy. Avoid the alcohol if you need to stay warm. 
The other thing is if you've got somebody who already is chilled. So here we have our hypothermia victim. Body temperature is dropped. They're chilled. You're trying to help them. You want to warm them up. Here's what you don't want to do. Oh, I know. We've got a little bit of warm water. We'll give him this nice tub of warm water. And we'll stick his feet in the warm water. And he was starting to threaten to get frostbite anyway. We'll warm up the feet and hands first. Because that's what we could easily reach and put in warm water. Let's see what's going to happen there. You put the warm water on the hands and feet. Ooh, the hands and feet start to feel better in that nice, toasty, warm water. And the blood vessels out there dilate. And when you dilate, you get more blood flow. And where's that flow coming? It's coming from your body core. So the heart starts to send out more nice, warm blood to those dilated vessels in the hands and feet. But to get there, it's got to go through the arms and legs. And it is still cold out there in the arms and legs, which means the blood that's going out there loses heat and the blood as it goes back in loses heat. You bring cold blood back to the core. You actually get worse chilling. So you've tried to warm them up by putting their hands and feet in cold water and you've made their hypothermia worse where it counts. And where it counts is primarily right here. So if you get that heart cold enough, it will stop on you. So it is, according to the wilderness medical experts that I've read, an error of judgment to try and warm them up by putting hands in, in warm water. Instead, you've got this person that's cold. You want to warm up their core. You want to apply the heat here at the core, if you can, before you warm up the extremities. Let the extremities have limited blood flow for a while. They'll be okay. If there's frostbite, all right, there's already frostbite. It's not going to get worse if you leave it be for a while. If you've got both frostbite and hypothermia, you treat the hypothermia first, and you deal with the frostbite later. If they're hypothermic, you warm the core. Maybe uh, put that warm water into some uh, water bottles. Maybe you've got a bladder for a, a backpack sipper thing. Put the warm water in there. Or you take some stones that have been around the fire and you wrap them up and get them nice and warm. And you put those warm things on the armpits and groin where the blood's coming back from the limbs toward the heart and you warm it. Put them on their stomach and warm up their chest. Maybe you have them lay on something warm or certainly on insulation. You warm the core first. And that'll actually bring up the core body temperature while the blood is still not moving very much in the arms and legs, as you get the core warm, you'll start sending warm blood out back to the extremities, and you'll get them warmed up by and by. Just don't start there. Start at the core first. There he is. Uh, I'm muting my mic well, so uh, you take that St. Bernard, the one with the whiskey rail on it, Pop the whiskey barrel off. You take the St. Bernard, you put the St. Bernard inside the sleeping bag with the person. Probably right there next to the person. And while the person's warming up and you're you're in your nice warm little tent area or whatever, you drink the whiskey. 
Oh, win all around. Score. Oh, uh, maybe. And then, but then afterwards, you really don't care whether the person. <laughs> okay. No, maybe not. But having the dog lay on them was a great idea, actually. Their body temperature is even a little warmer than yours. A nice, warm, living blanket snuggled up to you like that would be a great help. That's a great way to warm a person up. In fact, if you don't have warm water bottles or something else and you have a hypothermic person you're trying to save, uh, whether you are that fond of them socially or not, if you don't want them to freeze to death, you might uh, strip down to almost skin and crawl in and hug up real close to them to give them body heat. Yeah, I'd have to like a person for that. I, I'm just, you know, grumble, 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 grumble. <laughs> Getting a, hu- a hug from a stranger is bad enough. Getting a full body, close skin hug from somebody else is. Yeah, no, no. Just, no. Just want some flowers. Uh, you got, you, you'd like your chances with me because I don't like having cooling dead bodies where I'm hanging out anyway. So I'd probably uh, climb in and warm you up. Don't count on me. <laughs> I always count upon you, Salty. I always do. But that's what I had for blood vessels. So you can do these uh, approaches to get them to constrict or not constrict to the level you want to get the kind of effects you think are best for you. That's the basic story. Okay, now we're going to in the future, do another one on the pulmonary system that's a little different based. That's going to be about bleeding, but that's a different story. Uh, the vascular system. Yeah, vascular. Uh, that's, that's a different story, but still, a lot of what you have heard here affects what you see there. Yeah, everything is tied to everything else, but that one's going to be about blood, and this one is about vessels. So, All right. We'll talk to you later. Thank you for joining us, and uh, hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye.